Welcome back to the Online Learning Minute at Market Scale. I'm your host, Brian Runo, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Professor Ray Schroeder. Professor Schroeder is the Associate Vice Chancellor for Online Learning at the University of Illinois at Springfield, a senior fellow at UPSIA, the founder of the Center for Online Learning Research and Service, recipient of numerous national awards, and I'm sure that we could do the entire podcast talking about um, Ray Schroeder's accolades and achievements. So let's get started. Let's not do that. <laughs> Perfect. So Ray, let's get started then. Um, you know, in terms of timeliness here, a lot of universities have had a trial by fire with emergency remote teaching, but summer schools at universities have a lot of online-only options that uh, they've been using for a while now. And from your perspective, aside from taking the summer courses and launching them for the fall, um, what can university faculty do now to prepare for fall 2020, and what kind of changes are you seeing that are coming out for fall 2020? Well, Brian, first, thanks so much for uh, having me here. And I really uh, am looking forward to these conversations. So, you know, we approach the summer and we can take one breath. We're allowed now to breathe once and dive back in. Um, as you said, a high percentage of, on of classes in the summer have been online across the country. And that's because students return home and uh, uh, the university would like to retain them in taking classes rather than the students taking uh, classes at their geographic locale. So we're in pretty good shape across the country, mostly for the summer. But then looking to the fall, oh my, you know, that's, uh, that's an interesting time. And we have quite a mixed bag of plans at the moment. And of course, they're all based on projections. What do we expect this microbe, this tiny virus to do? And uh, some believe that uh, following models that there will be a bump up in, uh, in contagion of the disease and in the fall. So some universities like the Cal State system with 23 universities have decided that they're going to continue online. Um, others have decided that they're going to open on time on campus. And uh, those universities um, will have in place many different uh, provisions. Uh, in some cases, students are um, going to be assigned single rooms in dormitories and so that they can tend to isolate and students temperatures will be taken daily and uh, masks will still be required in some locations and large classes and lectures will be split up into smaller ones. And then there's a group of uh, uh, universities that are taking a flexible route. You know, there's, and we can talk more later about high flex um, or blend flex, as it's sometimes called, which is kind of a, a blended class. But others yet uh, are saying, you know, our models show that if we're going to have an increase, it's going to occur after Thanksgiving. So we're going to compress the semester and we're going to complete it by Thanksgiving. So when students go home for Thanksgiving break, they're not coming back. And uh, so there are all these models out there 
and they're based on conjecture, based on models uh, that have been developed, and we're really not sure which way it's going to go. But, but one thing that I think most universities are committed to is to improving the quality of remote teaching and learning. Um, you know, this, uh, you know, I, I went to several universities and talked to others uh, as we approached the uh, uh, beginning of shutdowns. And um, most universities had two weeks, maybe one week, to move, you know, in, in some cases, 5,000 classes online or 10,000 classes online. And that's just huge. That's, that's a job that couldn't be done in a year or two or three under normal circumstances. And so what we got was what we call remote teaching or remote learning. It's not really a, a fully developed online class. And in some ways, that's unfair to what we call online learning because students um, and others are making judgments saying, oh, you know, that was not good. And the faculty members simply had a, a brief lecture and, or a long, long lecture, and uh, it just wasn't effective online. But, but one has to remember that across the country, there were millions, millions of classes that were converted among 4,000 colleges and universities as they pushed in just a week or two to move things online. Yeah, I mean, I, I've i seen it with my own eyes, um, just watching some YouTube videos of these Zoom lectures. And I mean, there's a whole bunch of students there who you can clearly tell aren't really paying that much attention. But I mean, in the same, in a real lecture hall, that's probably the similar case. But um, definitely the move from uh, teaching in person to converting that um, online. I mean, it's not necessarily, as you said, fully online education. And I've spent several years now designing uh, courses for various universities and um, now for various companies. So, I mean, I think that in the next, uh, over the summer, we're probably going to see a lot of uh, faculty members who are coming to the distance learning departments, continuing education departments, and talking with instructional designers on how can I take my lecture and put it up online, right? Sure, you know, you know, there is our highly refined, very technical term that we use called chunking, <laughs> chunking lectures. But, uh, but the concept, I guess, is obvious that, you know, in this electronic medium, um, we find 10 minutes, you know, push it to 15, but is about as, as long as you can expect that people will pay attention to a small screen um, without interaction and engagement. And so uh, many, much of what's done, unfortunately, on Zoom is the kind of rambling on and on and on. You know, they're, not, they're doing it in a video format, whereas podcasts like this can be played in a car. They can be, you know, while you're doing other things. And, uh, but, you know, so I think we're, uh, for many, many, the majority of the remote teaching, not those that were previously online, but for the ones that we quickly deployed, uh, really didn't take advantage of the medium the right way we should. You know, the online medium 
does have very effective visuals of audio and uh, potential for interaction. And we need to, as we develop our courses, uh, we employ what we call pedagogy. You're so well familiar with it, the concept of uh, theory, principles, history of effective uh, teaching and learning online. And we've learned a lot. You know, I started uh, in online at the University of Illinois. We launched our first program here in Springfield in 1997. So, you know, it's been almost a quarter of a century. And we've learned a lot during that time about best practices, ways to engage students, ways to convey material. So, you know, when you talk about, and, and you're an expert in instructional design, you know, commonly we begin with the outcomes. We start at the end and then we uh, come back around and we ask faculty members, what is it that these students should know when they leave the class? And so then we build drawing upon an array of technologies, of strategies, of approaches that engage the students to best accomplish those learning outcomes at the end of the term. And, um, you know, we just couldn't do that uh, in the uh, remote teaching option in, in that big hurry that we had. And even now, even with a whole summer, a university cannot convert all of their classes to quality online. But, uh, but select classes where faculty members are motivated and uh, um, departments or programs are, uh, those can be accomplished. No, definitely. And I mean, there's a huge difference now from what uh, online learning was back in 1997 to what it is today. I mean, just looking at the amount of uh, internet bandwidth that's available, I would say that um, online learning before because it was dial-up was mostly similar to a correspondence course, whereas now you're getting a lot of that multimedia, you're getting um, video, audio, interactivity even. And I think one of the areas that you focused on a lot um, was sort of the future of uh, online learning and what changes are coming. And you mentioned a lot in uh, previous podcasts and previous posts, which we'll link to, um, in the description of this uh, podcast of uh, quantum computing. Is that right? Absolutely. You know, um, this decade, the decade of the 2020s, is a truly remarkable time. And uh, the developments are taking place uh, very rapidly. Um, of course, artificial intelligence uh, is really kind of the name of the game. And, and we see that a lot. In fact, you know, if you read the New York Times or Bloomberg News or, gosh, so many of the uh, news outlets, then about a third of those news reports are written by computer. They're AI written. They're not written by reporters. You know, and back, remember back in the day when we had sports? <laughs> well, uh, certainly sports is, is a natural, but but AI throws in all of those, you know, he hit a round tripper and he went the circuit and all of those things AI knows and it just blends it into its reporting and writes the reports for us. So just as that's occurring in journalism, so too is it occurring in education. And in a way it's a two-edged sword. Uh, the faculty members have to be cognizant of these changes as they develop 
uh, course materials, recognizing that students have access to very powerful tools that can help them write, write and research. Um, but so as we look at the 2020s, um, we see AI dominating what we're doing in the first half, certainly, of this decade and a little more. But what we also see is the advent of quantum computing, and that's a whole new game. You know, uh, we used to talk about Moore's Law, which was that the computing power would double every year, 18 months, something like that. That's long gone. Now, now there's a new law for quant quantum computing, and it is a double exponential. That is each yeah, year. Yeah, Nevin, Nevin's law, right? <laughs> exactly right. Helmut yes. Nevin's. And, you know, his law is that, that the computing power will double at a rate of whatever, wherever you are to the power of two to the power of X. So it'll be doubly exponential. And frankly, you know, to visualize that on a graph, you, you essentially have a vertical line. It, it, it just changes so incredibly fast. Whereas before we were looking at more of a linear incremental uh, growth in uh, uh, computing power. So, you know, and something happened this past summer, almost a year ago. Um, it was a, a, a test between um, the fastest supercomputer in the world that was at Oak Ridge Cemetery, Oak Ridge, uh, not cemetery, pardon me, Lab. that's where Lincoln is buried, I think, but <laughs> at, uh, at Oak Ridge in Tennessee, it's a nuclear lab facility. Um, but Summit uh, computer, supercomputing computer, uh, was put up against a, a 54 qubit uh, uh, computer and that uh, they were given a, a problem. The problem was to identify whether a set of numbers um, and the formula for that set would bring up prime numbers or not. And that's, you know, that's a normal kind of test. But it, it worked particularly well for quantum. So uh, the Summit computer said this would be accomplished in 10,000 years because they'd have to run multiple, multiple, multiple programs for 10,000 years at supercomputing speeds. Well, the quantum computer uh, came up with the answer in 200 seconds. Now, 200 seconds versus 10,000 years, that gives you a sense of the difference between the two. And when we talk about uh, quantum computing, it is that as we move forward with quantum, it will drive the, art, the AI, artificial intelligence. The two work hand in hand. And so rather than using a traditional computer or even a supercomputer to drive the algorithms uh, and to do the deep learning um, of AI, uh, we will use quantum computers and it'll be done like that in a snap. And it's, uh, this will change the world, truly. Um, the capacity and the ability to, uh, uh, to address, you know, these massive challenges of building algorithms that will uh, allow computers to make informed decisions, to project and to, uh, to function 
in, uh, in ways that are certainly superior to an individual. And so this is really an exciting time. Um, but by the end of this decade, I think we're going to see that. You know, we're not going to see quantum computers on our desktop. Uh, mostly these will uh, be housed in the cloud because they're very expensive and most of them have to uh, use superconducting materials that are not easy to maintain on your desktop. However, um, one will buy a millisecond of time <laughs> of processing power for a pretty penny and, uh, uh, and it will give you the output that you need to advance your algorithm or to uh, move forward with artificial intelligence. But you know, Ray, um, people said similar things about uh, having a home com or having a computer at home uh, back in the 1950s because, you know, they were the size of a house or size of your garage. And they were like, oh, there's no need to have this in your house and everything. I mean, I'd have to say um, definitely not within the next 10 years we would have uh, quantum laptops or anything like that. But I mean being able to utilize uh, the cloud infrastructure. I know the Goldman Sachs and Gartner are currently using uh, cloud infrastructure just to learn how to code it. And they were saying that they need anywhere from thousands to tens of thousands of qubits of power or qubits of power in order to make um, predictions. Yes. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. sure. I, you know, I, I, uh, I don't disagree. And I do remember the 1950s. So, so I, you know, I've had the good fortune to, uh, uh, to experience these many, many changes over the intervening decades. So, yeah, I think that's possible. I think, you know, that's why I kind of keep my projections to no more than 2030 because, good heavens, you know, where we go is just uh, unbelievable. But, so what does that mean for education? You know, the interim steps in learning, um, we look at uh, adaptive learning. One of the challenges, uh, and you know, I've been teaching for, golly, nearly half a century. I started in, on the faculty at the University of Illinois at Urbana, 1971-72. Uh, and um, there have been so many, many changes. But one of the frustrations that, uh, that exists for just about every educator is if you're teaching a class of let's say 30 students, you may have five who are exceptionally advanced, who are way ahead. And then you might have five that are having some challenges and difficulties, maybe 10. Um, and then you've got this kind of very large middle uh, that you can address rather well. And then uh, uh, most of us prioritize helping those students who are having challenges. So uh, you try to bring them along and provide them um, alternative uh, ways of explaining the material, different kinds of exercises to be sure that, that they can scaffold what they learn in the class. But those top five, you know, they're just off on their own and there's not much that we do for them. So, you know, one of the pieces that's been around actually since Plato, uh, the uh, system developed by the University of Illinois, but also uh, Control Data Corporation, it predates uh, the internet as we know it, uh, started in the 1960s, funded by um, the Department of Defense, just as the internet was. 
Um, but in any event, um, in that, uh, from, from back those early days, what we called computer-assisted instruction, we were able to branch. And so students would take a class solely on a computer. There wouldn't be lectures, there wouldn't be video, there wouldn't be audio, you know, maybe a little recorded audio, but not much. And basically, they would uh, get textual, text-based uh, lessons, they'd take quizzes, but depending upon the wrong answer, which wrong answer they chose, it would take them to a different tutorial to review and take a different view of the material to try to clear up what uh, the computer had been programmed to perceive as a certain misunderstanding. And then uh, students would be quizzed again and they'd move forward. Well, so even over that long, long time, um, we've been working on adaptive learning, which artificial intelligence does very well. And um, with the adaptive learning, I mean, and quantum computing and education, that's kind of probably one of the big things that you're going to use it for because I would suspect that the amount of bandwidth needed for uh, creating personalized lessons for individual students to sort of epitomize the connectivist theory and personalized learning that's already available. Um, do you kind of see that with artificial intelligence and quantum computing that in a way we could replace some of the teachers to create those lessons for those students at their pace and in the methodology which best works for them? You know, that's a great question. You know, uh, a couple of the highlights of, uh, in my academic life came with the same person. Uh, it was having lunch uh, with uh, Professor Ashok Gold. Ashok uh, is a computer science professor at Georgia Tech University. And as you may know, Georgia Tech, uh, some years ago, perhaps five, maybe six, uh, launched their online master's in computer science uh, with the same faculty, same courses, but now as a MOOC, as a uh, uh, massive uh, degree program, and it has been extraordinarily successful. In fact, they have more than 10,000 majors, 10,000, by far more than any other master's of computer science in the world, and a substantial portion of those uh, graduate students. Uh, uh, but in any event, Ashok teaches um, artificial intelligence and his class size, of course, got much larger, teaching 300 online at a time. Uh, Georgia Tech gave him six graduate assistants and he brought in a seventh. Um, it's pretty good, you know, to try to answer the questions and keep the students all moving in the same direction. and. So the idea was that the professor, Ashok, would uh, deliver his material and students would ask questions. The GAs would uh, field those, the teaching assistants, and they'd send on any that they couldn't answer to the professor. Well, uh, the one he brought on, Jill Watkins, was not very good at the beginning. Um, you know, she, uh, she was, you know, a little out of the ordinary in her responses. But by the end of the semester, she was doing, uh, you know, a tremendous uh, job. Um, and, and in fact, um, what, um, what, what she ended up doing uh, was uh, she was actually um, uh, 
uh, nominated for uh, TA of the year. Um, and so, um, and, and the names had changed, but um, uh, now I'm trying to recall, I'm probably wrong on Watkins, uh, but, but she actually was uh, an artificial intelligence program um, that was running on an IBM supercomputer. And uh, uh, was this the same uh, similar program with the IBM Watson, Watson that did Jeopardy? Watson. Oh, Watson. Yes. Pardon me. Gotcha. Yeah, Watson. <laughs> so Jill Watson and the students didn't recognize. They pulled the students 300. Nobody recognized she was an algorithm. Uh, and he, it, that was uh, an uh, artificial intelligence uh, uh, computer program. And so Jill Watson was, uh, was answering their questions so quickly and throwing in anecdotes about the weather and about sports and, <laughs> you know, just making things, you know, quite chatty and normal. Um, well, ever since that, Ashok has refined that program and taken it off of the Watson computer to put it onto uh, a, a far less expensive, you know, uh, generic platform. And his goal is to develop uh, a version that would be about $15,000 so that middle schools, high schools, colleges, universities, all could have a deep learning, self-teaching um, algorithm that could be plugged into any program, not just artificial intelligence. I mean, it could be civics, it could be history, English, you name it. And uh, over time, that this algorithm uh, would, would learn the right answers. So it would join a teacher for uh, a one, two, three semesters. And uh, over that time, it would uh, learn the materials by referring questions it didn't know the answer to. In the case of Jill, the first instance, um, the questions, if that algorithm determined it had a 97% certainty of the right answer, it would go ahead and answer. But if, it, if the question fell on that 3%, it would refer it the question to Asha Gold, but of course monitor and then learn, add it to its uh, knowledge base and be able to move forward. So the very question that you've asked is one that we can answer um, as we look forward to the way in which we're teaching. And so what does that mean for teachers? Well, you know, I mean, it doesn't mean that computers will only teach us, but what it means is that teachers will be able to do what they uniquely can do best, and that is to mentor students, to assist students with difficulty, to help bring about clarifications, to oversee and monitor, but also to develop the class, to create you know, the instructional development for the class so that uh, it achieves the ever-changing learning outcomes that we have classes in society today definitely i mean i can totally envision seeing um well not really seeing it but actually just experience um my child go into college and be taught by an artificial intelligence uh program and not even realize it um i mean i i, I definitely see that as a very good possibility 
But now, um, Ray, we're coming up at about a half hour now, and I wanted to throw in one wild card question for you. And this is kind of a doozy, but just um, in terms of with quantum computing, and you said earlier that um, the computer at Oak Ridge Laboratory would take 10,000 years that something a 54-qubit computer could do in 200 seconds. Now, how do you feel that this is going to give implications to privacy when in reality, like AES 256-bit encryption could probably be broken pretty quickly? And not only that, but just student privacy in terms of with these uh, machine learning algorithms taking all of the knowledge and sharing it between themselves to make it uh, the ultimate knowledge base? That's a great question, Brian. And let me begin by saying I believe in, uh, in protecting privacy. Um, as I had mentioned, I grew up in the 1950s. So back then we did have privacy. Um, I would posit that there is no privacy today. And that doesn't mean that we give up on privacy, but there is none. We can be observed, we can be intercepted, we can be projected, that is uh, based on our past uh, uh, behaviors and uh, uh, whatever, uh, computers can rather accurately project what we're going to do in every instance. So privacy is in the past and we'll have this post privacy era um, that will you know, be a real challenge in a way um, to us, to our mindset, but we will be open books, so to speak, to, uh, to computers and to others. And, you know, even now, you know, I, you know, I, I enjoy fishing. So, uh, you know, I look at something on Amazon and then when I'm looking elsewhere on the web, oh, there's a brand new lure. There's a brand new rod and reel, you know, uh, in the right column advertising. I mean, there is no privacy. It honestly, it's going away, and it's it's even deeper than most of us know. Uh, deeper than most of us know, there are uh, the only things, and maybe even not now, because of research being done at MIT and elsewhere, our thoughts may not be private either. So. That's that's a scary that thought. That is a scary but thing. I'm, but I'm but I'm sure the I'm sure the computers already knew that. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I've run a, uh, reviewed a couple of articles in that area, and it is uh, a lot is going on on being able to perceive brain waves um, from outside the uh, person and uh, be able to interpret, particularly speech. So if you're thinking in speech or a visual, uh, it can reproduce those. Uh, without direct contact. That is, that is extremely fascinating. Now, Ray, um, thank you so much for joining us today. And I'm sure that you and I will get together again to go into more depth on some of the topics that we talked about. But um, do you want to have any final words for the audience? Well, no, I, I'm looking forward to further conversations. We have exciting times ahead. Do not despair in this crisis. Um, in some ways, I think we will emerge um, stronger and better and with better tools than we had going in. So uh, best wishes to all. Great. 
thank you so much ray ray shoder everybody the um Associate Vice Chancellor for Online Learning at the University of Illinois at Springfield. Make sure to check out his website and blog. And that was your Online Learning Minute at Market Scale. Be sure to tune in next episode where we talk more about the intersection of education and technology. Mm-hmm.